Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Zachary Green's life experiences in the U.S. Marine Corps, firefighting service, and as an entrepreneur helped him realize that these careers have a lot in common. They entail risk, struggle, grit, and bravery. Zachary is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and was a lieutenant with his local fire department. He is the founder and former CEO of M&A LumaWare Foxfire. He grew the company from the trunk of his car to over $30 million in organic sales. Zachary was selected by the Obama White House as one of 10 entrepreneurs to represent the United States at the Global Entrepreneur Summit. Zachary's book, Warrior Entrepreneur, revolves around the science of growth that comes from challenge and adversity. These hardships prepare you for your crucible, the crisis that changes your life's trajectory. I love talking about this with Zachary because we all have our personal crucibles. It is through those crucibles that we transform, change, and learn. Many small business owners face adversities, especially in early years, and the challenges keep coming. This is a great episode for every entrepreneur to inspire ways to release your inner warrior and accomplish your life's mission. Enjoy this week's succession stories to learn how warrior principles apply to your business with Zachary Green. Zachary, welcome to Succession Stories. This is going to be a really interesting episode because you're so much about transformation and change. You're an entrepreneur, you're a military veteran and firefighter. There's so many things in your experience that I want to talk about. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Laurie. I'm a huge fan of yours and it's a real honor to be here today. Thank you. Let's start with you, your origin story. What did you want to be when you grew up? It's funny. I wanted to be three things. I wanted to be a Marine. I wanted to be a firefighter and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It took me a while to get all those checked off my list, but I've uh, been able to nail it. How did you know that as a kid? It's funny. As a very young kid, the other kids outside would be playing soccer and riding their bikes and I'd be spreading mud on my face and crawling through the woods and my parents thought that you know there was something wrong with me which obviously there is I remember the mailman hit our fire hydrant in front of our house and set up a geyser of about 30 feet high and the fire department came out and as a little kid probably four or five I remember playing on the fire truck and I just literally and figuratively lit a fire inside of me and wanted to do that 
But the entrepreneur side is I'd get bored and steal stuff out of my parents' pantry and then go door to door and try to sell it. And <laughs> call my parents up and like, you know, your son's trying to sell your dish soap, right? And they're like, okay. And they, they encouraged it. And every single uh, competition we had in school of selling tickets or selling candy bars or whatever, I always was the top one there. And so... I just love the adventure, the flexibility, the opportunity of never knowing what tomorrow brings. And, and it's something that's you know always been a, a North Star for me. So for the first thing you did, you graduated high school and that's when you joined the Marines. Is that right? Well, growing up in a aristocratical Jewish family, the last thing they want their little uh, bubki to do is uh, to join the Marine Corps. But Again, no one in my family had been in the military. They were all musicians and attorneys and whatever. And so, yeah, my parents weren't supportive. I didn't care. I I signed up almost uh, the day I turned 18. And a couple of weeks later, I find myself in Paris Island thinking like, what the hell did I just get myself into? I want my mommy here. (laughs) You had to tough it out. And you probably were going through your own transformation at that time. What was that like? You know, that's a great term because the Marine Corps is the only branch that you don't just join the Marines, you become a Marine. That's not like that in the other branches. You transform. One thing that was fascinating to me, not at the time, but looking back, I found it just amazing, is I had somewhat of an upper-class upbringing. I had a mom that spoiled me so much, she literally laid my clothes on the foot of my bed my senior year of high school. I had everything given to me and and great support of family, but yet I struggled so much down at Paris Island recruit training. What I couldn't understand is the kids that grew up in West Virginia that literally had dirt floors. They were telling us about the dirt floors whose dads died in their 40s from black lung or working in the coal mines. Your only option was to go into the coal mines, which was basically suicide, or join the Marine Corps. The kids that grew up in the inner city of Philadelphia and New Orleans that didn't eat every day, they literally went to bed hungry. They flourished in this environment. They're like, hey, this is great. I got three meals a day. I got a nice, comfortable, you know, rack to sleep in. And here I am struggling. And what I I couldn't understand that. It just didn't make sense. But what I started to realize is this concept of the warrior ethos and the warrior journey. And that is the more adverse you have, the more challenge you have, the stronger you get. Now, if you're not taking that warrior attitude, and by the way, a warrior doesn't have to be a Marine or a Navy SEAL or an ancient Spartan. It could be that single mom that's, you know, getting out of an abusive relationship and is just trying to hold her, you know, what together to get our kids into a good school and, and work two jobs. A warrior is someone that has adversity and struggle and grows for it. And that's really where I learned what that warrior spirit was. And thank God, because it really, really helped me out, not just made me successful as an entrepreneur, but in all honesty, probably saved my life because the the process during that journey of entrepreneurship is, is brutal. Yeah, absolutely. How many years were you in the military? So I was in during a funky time from 91 to 99. It was during the Clinton years. There was a ton of attrition. We did not have one single combat deployment. That's the reason I left. I was started out in artillery, went to infantry, and I wanted to kill people and blow stuff up. And I never got the opportunity. And so kind of disgruntled, uh, left the Marine Corps. And then a year and a half later, September 11th happened. I tried to get back in. I was married at that time. My wife wouldn't want nothing of that. 
And I kind of, I guess you would say I'd have the opposite of PTSD. I have survivor's guilt, very deep survivor's guilt. I lost quite a few people from my unit. I went to a lot of funerals of 18 and 19 year old brothers. Now I didn't know them, but I just, in the back of my mind felt that I had left a hole. I had quit and they filled that, that hole and, and they didn't make it. So it was very transformational when I got out and, you know, looking back, it was the right decision, but at the time I felt bad. Yeah. Understandable. It's a call of duty, right? You've had all that training and and it was important to you to serve. So in the way that you are, I can tell you were motivated to do something. Um, Is that when you got into firefighting? Absolutely. So, you know, the new front line of the battle is no longer Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, you know, Germany. It's it's our backyard. It's New York City. It's Los Angeles. It's Cincinnati, Ohio. And so, you know, it's funny in the Marine Corps, we have a wonderful talent of taking things that are really fun and making them as miserable as possible. And the fire service, uh, we take things that are kind of miserable and make them as fun as possible. But the one thing that I was really impressed upon very early on as a firefighter is how they solve problems. We can't dial 912 after you call 911 and we show up at your house. We got to solve the problem. And the creativity and the innovation of a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids sitting on the end of a tailboard of a fire truck is amazing. You know, my full-time job at the time was Eli Lilly multi-billion dollar company, just tremendous from an innovation standpoint. And I will tell you, there's more innovation going on at a firehouse than there is in the in the labs in Indianapolis there. <laughs> so did you go to college in between? I did. So I actually served in the Marine Corps Reserves while I was in college. I also went through the officer program. My degree was in sport administration and marketing. I wanted to work for one of the big professional sports teams, and I got my dream. I got to work for the Los Angeles Raiders when they were in L.A. My family's from L.A., so I was able to stay with them. But I tell people it was a great experience to intern there because it's like sausage. It it tastes great. It smells great. looks great until you see how they make the sausage, and then you'll never eat it again. And it's amazing the facade that the NFL and, and all professional sports puts on of this big professional organization run by an absolute bunch of misfits, derelicts, and not good people. That sounds like that could be another episode. So we'll, we'll kind of leave that where that is. I, by the way, I was I was working for the Raiders when the OJ thing happened. I uh, actually oh, wow. got stuck in the 405 traffic when he was doing his famous slow speed speech. And he had just gotten escorted out of an event a week earlier by Marcus Allen, a couple other ones for beating up one of his girlfriends so bad. It was, well, it was horrible. Like I said, I've got a pretty tight connection to that story and it was amazing seeing it firsthand. Yeah, I can imagine. I can just imagine. So the firefighting side, if you're a firefighter, you're literally walking into that battle, knowing what's in front of you. And I think that hearing some of the the talks that you've given previously, there was an experience that you had that inspired you to become an entrepreneur. What was that story? So to kind of back up for a second, I, I think the most important thing an entrepreneur has to have or a small business owner innovator is solving a problem. And when you think of firefighting, that's really what it is. It's problem solving. Now, sometimes it involves putting wet stuff on red stuff and putting the fire out. But other times it could be the proverbial cat in the tree or somebody, a kid that's, you know, head stuck inside the swing set or something along those lines. It's all about problem solving. 
So the first thing in problem solving is what's the problem, right? And in my case, it was within a week or two of my first opportunity to actually get into fires. And I'm working my way down the hallway. And all of a sudden, I find myself trapped. Now, if you go down a hallway, you should always expect that there's a door or a staircase at the end of the hallway. What happened is, as I was searching, now you got 80 pounds of gear on your back. You're breathing air in a mask. You've got no dexterity. And when I say it's black, it's black. Now, we've all gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. As long as you get that little light on in the corner, that's all you really need to orient yourself. But when you see nothing, two steps off of you going out of your bedroom to the bathroom, you're, you're disoriented. And what happened was, as I was searching down the hallway, I went into a bedroom and ended up in a closet and didn't know it was a large closet. And I was surrounded by three walls. I was trapped. Now, obviously, I found my way out, and I was pretty upset. And when I got outside, I started talking to my captain, and, and I, mean, I was almost in tears. I was that upset. And he starts making fun of me. And he's like, look, this is what happens every time you go into a fire. So the little proverbial light bulb went off, and I said, well, okay, there's a problem, and there's an opportunity to solve this problem. And that's really what started me on this 12-year journey to create LumaWare. So what was LumaWare? What is LumaWare? So basically, it's a high-output glow-in-the-dark, photoluminescence. Think of it as glow-in-the-dark on steroids. The problem is, is to get it to glow that much, you have to use certain rare earth elements, strontium, europium, all these really difficult things to not only acquire, but also to manipulate. They are metal-based crystals, so when you manipulate them too much, they, they corrode and turn black. So if you just take a bunch of the powder, you dump it into some silicone, you mix it up, it's not going to work. So I, not me, but I found some people a lot smarter than me, which, by the way, is not that difficult. Um, <laughs> and I got them to put it into different carriers, such as silicone and epoxy and different types of vinyls, very high temperature resistant. And we started using them as accessories on the gear, a helmet band, a wrap around the tool, a paint on the ladder, and started selling out of the trunk of my car. I made about 5000 bucks in six months. And typically what I would do is I'd go to a fire station and say, hey, my name is Zach. I'm a firefighter from the Cincinnati area. Can we go in the bathroom and turn the lights off together? And if they didn't beat me up, they usually like, oh, this stuff's pretty cool. And what I would do when I got in there is I would set up the scenario. Okay, how many times have we been in a situation where you can't see anything? And I was like, always. Then I pull the glow in the dark material out and they're like, whoa, that's incredible. You know, but what I did is I never sold the features and functions. I never sold the glow technology. What I sold was the problems of disorientation, the problems of the lack of accountability and how this material helps solve that problem. So after about six months of, of literally selling out of the trunk of my car, I went to a trade show. I had a booth that looked like it was put together by Sanford and Son. I had a uh, old tent that had sidewalls held together with duct tape and zip ties. We had cardboard signs that we wrote on with black Sharpie markers. We looked like those homeless people on the side of the road. But we had a line so long of so many firefighters wanting to go in that dark room and see the product that it, it was incredible. You know, firefighters respect other firefighters. Next to us is a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar booth from Honeywell that had almost no one in it until our line got so long, people backed into their booth, and then they were thanking us for having people in there. I booked $100,000 in three days. The problem was, is I had no more cash because I spent all on the booth. 
I had no way to fill the orders. And people are like, hey, you got to start returning this money and cancel. And I'm like, absolutely not. There is an opportunity here. And I'm a Marine and we believe in mission accomplishment no matter what. And I ended up refinancing my home, maxed out my credit cards, borrowed against my 401k and eventually raised a couple million dollars in venture capital financing. And with that, we opened up. So that first brand is called Foxfire. That was mainly just for the firefighters. To the day, we've got about 100,000 firefighters using our products. And then with the help of the investment firm, we started going after the exit sign market because there's 100 million exit signs in the United States. They all need batteries, light bulbs, and electricity. And what we were able to do is actually meet the code with our glow in the dark and not have to have that batteries, light bulbs, and electricity Eventually got in with three of our nation's four largest retailers, started getting picked up by Home Depot, and eventually turned into about a $30 million company over the next couple of years. Amazing. So literally started, as you said, duct tape and cardboard and had success at that early event. And the pain point that you experienced, that your fellow firefighters experienced, that guidance that you gave to you know solve a problem, that's so critical. So many times... I see great technology coming out of the universities and then they struggle with the product market fit. They need to bring on other people who are more of that marketing and sales minded individual that can sell the quarter inch hole versus the quarter inch drill bit. You know, it's funny. Um, it, it, in big pharma, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. They're innovative team is so detached from the sales team, so detached from out there. So they're coming up with these, solving these problems that don't necessarily exist. And the sales team are the ones that's out there that knows, hey, we've got a real problem with obesity. We've got a real problem with diabetes. We've got a real problem with Alzheimer's. And being able to connect those two, and, and no one really did that. That was one of the projects I worked on at Lilly was helping to work with the research scientists to talk about what the problems were out there in the field. And, you know, that's great that you created a drug that stops the third eye from popping out of your forehead. But last time I checked, that's not really a problem. So like you said, they're selling the hole instead of the drill bit. Yeah, absolutely. So we've skipped over a lot of years where the company, you know, flash forward, it became 30 million in revenue. Uh, Did you add some key people underneath you to the management team? Uh, I got out of the management team. That was the key thing. Um, it, it was brutal. And, you know, I, I, I glossed over a lot of the really dark days and difficulty. Um, there were three times I almost went personally bankrupt, almost lost my house, almost lost the company. And if it wasn't for what I learned in the Marine Corps of how to deal with that stress and those coping skills, A, the company wouldn't have survived, and B, I probably would not have survived either. Um the transformational point happened and going back to that warrior journey that we started talking about in the Marine Corps is that at some point in time, so the warrior goes through this trials and tribulations when they start to train and it could be anything from practicing for volleyball and going through the summer training to, (coughs) excuse me, to in the Marine Corps going through those rigorous, rigorous challenges, but eventually you face a crucible and the crucible is when the warrior gets to a point in their life that they're just not prepared for, that whatever's happened up to then is not enough to get past that next point. And at the bottom of that crucible is the abyss. And the abyss is where darkness and and 
fear and death lies. Now, the philosopher Nietzsche once said about the abyss, if you stare long enough to the abyss, eventually the abyss will stare back and consume you. And what that means is if you stay into that bad situation for too long in a company that's not working because you're not doing the right things in an abusive relationship, uh, abusing drugs or alcohol, the harder it is to get out of it. But if you can recognize the abyss and honor it for the fact that it's a place you don't want to be, and then you have to transform and change to get through that. So to specifically answer your question, when I got a call on vacation from my CFO saying that we were basically out of money and I had a panic attack and I thought I was dying and I made a time decision at that crucible, the abyss being the failure of the company, that the transformation had to be me. And I resigned as CEO. I got rid of most of my leadership team, brought in a very experienced CEO and told him, hey, you do what you need to do. I don't want to know how much money's in the bank. I want to know who's getting hired and fired, but I do want to be the visionary. I do want to continue making sure the culture is where it needs to be and innovation. And that's when we transformed and that's when we changed. And, and it's interesting because looking back, it was very clear at the time. It was very difficult. Most founders are really bad CEOs. Um, the skill set to be a founder, to be an innovator, to be an entrepreneur is so vastly different than the skill set to be a CEO. Um, the founders need to be innovative. They need to be visionaries. They need to work on 10 opportunities at once. The CEO needs to be meticulous, focused, problem solving, being able to step away from the business and look at the the logic where an entrepreneur is all about the sizzle and the razzle and, and talking to people. And it was so clear to me at that time that I was holding the company back. So to your point, that that's how I made the change was taking myself out of the, the day to day. If you were going to rewind on that situation, what you just described, visionary versus someone who's more of the integrator and more process oriented and in that operational mode, would you have hired that person sooner now that you look back or was it a concern about cash flow, or was it ego that you wanted to be the main? It was ego. It was ego without question. And it was probably a decision that my venture capital firm had some very difficult conversations with me to the point where we almost blew the company up. We were arguing so much, everyone around me, but I'm not giving up. It's my baby. And, you know, think about your kids, you know, when they get to a certain point, you're going to hurt them if you allow them to stay at home with you. You have to eventually let them go and go on their own because that's how they really transform and grow and change. But it's hard to drop your kid off to college or to be able to do those things or eventually to kick them out of the house when they got no place to go. So I had to go through that crucible. I had to go through that difficulty because without it, there's no way I would have known. Now, of course, looking back, sure, I would have done it differently, but you don't have that luxury when you're in the middle of the fight. Yeah. So at that time you had venture money, correct? You had taken in some venture money. So you had taken venture money. I had gone a second round and a down round where they, they really started to, you know, go from, Hey, we're here to help you to, Hey, we're going to get this thing straightened out. Gotcha. So you had a board, you had governance, you had, it wasn't just you there. And some companies don't have that. Entrepreneurs a lot of times are just in their own heads. Here you did have some advisors and they had a fiduciary role because they were investors. What about your family? Did your wife see it? You know, could she tell that this is where it was headed? I try not to include them in that stuff. If anything, they were more of the side that, hey, don't let this get taken away from you. Don't let, don't give up the ship and that type of thing. So they were not supportive of that. 
Um, but again, they, they're not in the business. They didn't see it. Um, I think it's interesting what you talked about. There, there's two kinds of boards. There's advisory boards that do not have fiduciary responsibilities, and then there's actual boards that do. And I think it's important to have both. The advisory board works for the entrepreneur, for the founder. The actual board works for the company and, and makes those decisions that are best for the company. And it's important to to listen to both and understand where both of them come from. It's great when they're aligned with each other, but that doesn't always happen. Did you have advisors? I didn't have a formal board, but I had some really, really good advisors. I And it's interesting because as I went through my journey from being a guy selling out of the trunk of my car and working out of my garage to a pretty substantial operation, those advisors flexed and changed um, over time. So how many years had it been from when you just had gotten it started, you know, bootstrapping to when you left the role as CEO? How long was that? Company started in 2010, and I think probably by 2007, 2008 is when we had the big um, crucible, I guess you could say. And um, almost instantly, you know, we, we were the, the problem that we got in trouble wasn't revenue. We were making more money than we could imagine. The problem was cash flow. We were um, getting these really big deals. I'm talking, you know, seven in some cases, eight figure deals. But we ran out of cash between, you know, the cash conversion cycle is what kills uh, small companies. Um, we had two or three major deals. Uh, we didn't have enough cash for the raw materials. Then we got slow paid and it just kind of all kind of came together from there. So that, that was, that was the issue on, on that side of the house. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was just learning how to manage and, and get through that. That that was the real the challenge at that time. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com/podcast. Is there anything with cash flow that you think you could have done differently with payment terms, getting cash up front? This comes up a lot in conversations. It's either get a line of credit, right? How do they get the working capital they need? What could have been done differently in that regard for you? You got to do every possible thing you can do to get cash. I think the first thing I tell people is never mistake um, revenue for profit. Because you can be more profitable at a million dollars a year than you can at four million. Because at a four million dollar company, you now are adding these what I call non-revenue generating positions, such as HR and additional finance and these other type of things. The other thing I think I've done differently is you got to hire a really, really good CFO, not bookkeeper, not account CFO. And the beauty is there's a ton of these CFOs on call. So a small company that's making $5 million a year does not need a full-time CEO. But maybe getting a couple hours a week or a day a week out of them, that that's important because they're the ones that put those long-term forward-looking performers out there to say, hey, we're, we're in a trouble. Where I'm like, dude, you're crazy. We just made a million-dollar sales. How can we be in trouble? And he's like, um, the sale is not a sale till the check clears the bank. And it may be six months until the check clears the bank between manufacturing lead times or what happened with us is, you know, we're selling these really large companies. And let's say we sell them a million dollar deal. To us, that's a tremendous amount of money. To them, that's decimal dust. 
And if somebody just filed the wrong paperwork or didn't sign something or was out of the office, they're not going to pay you. And um, again, it's just a million bucks. They don't care. But to us, that was, you know, do or die. So transformation change, your crucible moment had come and you had now crossed that chasm, right? You've now transitioned to more of a, a board role. Or are you still involved with the company? No, so I'm still still involved. Um, uh, I usually, you know, I'm I check in probably once a day or so, but I've really done a better job of of delegating. Um, it's frustrating because I know I can do better uh, than the people that are doing the job, but I got to let them do it. And I always tell people, no one will ever do as good of a job as you at your own company. It's just not going to happen. However, they don't need to do as good of a job as you. If you can get them to do 70% as good as you and you hire two of them, that's 40% more than you can do. Just by the mere fact of quantity becomes a quality in its own over time and, and just capacity and how much you have. So that that's my goal now is, is trying to empower those around me, um, make a much larger shift to distribution rather than to direct sales. Um, again, was too wrapped up on the whole control thing, but realized we couldn't control it. So now I have several thousand sales reps rather than just three or four because I can empower these distributors. But the challenge then becomes, okay, how do they pay attention to your shiny red ball and not the other shiny red ball? 